0: Hey, this is Lee. I really hope you've been enjoying the Business of Marketing podcast. It's from marketers and for marketers, and my intention is to bring you value, experiences, and insights that you can use. Also, if your company would like to have their own podcast, I would love to help. The team at Content Monster specializes in B2B podcasts, so if we can help, contact me at contentmonster.com. That's contentmonster, M-O-N-S-T-A, dot com. Enjoy the podcast. Listening to
1: the Business of Marketing Podcast, where we have conversations with some of the most influential and thought provoking minds in marketing, sales, and business. And here's your host, A. Lee Judge.
0: Welcome again to the Business of Marketing. I'm A. Lee Judge. On the weeks leading up to Content Marketing World, I love to get a chance to speak with other speakers at the event because I know that we are at our sharpest on the topic of content marketing. It's also great to speak with agency owners because they experience things that that they're able to share with marketers, uh, which is typically broader than what marketers inside a company can see. So today's guest is a founder of, and owner of AHA Media Group, a healthcare content agency, and she's passionate about providing clear content for people who need to make empowered and informed decisions. With more than 20 years of experience in writing, messaging, and marketing, she's a well-recognized content expert. So welcome to the podcast, Ahava Liebtag. Hi, Ahava. How are you doing?
1: Thank you so much for having me, Lee. It's great to be here. I can't, I'm so excited for this. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well thanks for joining me today. I'm, you know, it, like I said it's it's really great to talk to people who I know hopefully I'll get a chance to see you in a few weeks at content marketing world. Yeah. And for those who are listening to the podcast after the fact, hopefully you can find our replays or just follow us and you'll see content from us that I guess we'll re- we'll get into repurposing after the event. We we'll, we both are good at that so you'll still get some <laughs> snippets from us. Yeah. So, Aaron, I'm really Ahav, I'm really interested in how your agency seems to have a focus on the healthcare industry. Um, If my perception is accurate, what is the story behind your choice to focus on a particular industry?
1: Sure. So I had a life-threatening healthcare uh, emergency when I was in my late 20s, early 30s. I had a GI condition that really went undiagnosed for a long time. And I saw a lot of doctors. I read a lot of terrifying things on the internet. And it made me really passionate about wanting to give people who were in severe crisis, because I don't really think there's anything like a healthcare crisis. It's just a completely different animal. And so when I was first starting as a freelance writer, I really was writing about a lot of things, but one of my first clients was a hospital. And I found that I really enjoyed the work and I was really passionate about it because of my own experiences. And I think that one of the things we always tell our clients is, yes, you're the client, but the true client and customer is the person on the other side of the screen. Who's really reading this information. And I know that from a B2B perspective as well, because we do all kinds of healthcare content, these people are making decisions about their jobs, which affects everything about their lives. So I think for me, communication in general, and then also really clear writing is fundamental towards having a safer, more equitable society. I mean, we just saw it with the pandemic and all the mistakes that were made in communications. We see it in the changing norms of language, how we need to strive to be more inclusive and think about diverse audiences. And so, you know, it's exciting to be on the forefront of that. I really do believe that we're helping people, that we're empowering people to make the most important decisions of their lives. One of the things I joke around about is that our unofficial tagline is we're making the healthcare web safer one word at a time. And that's really something I believe in,
0: so. Well, I noticed you said, you mentioned the pandemic and you mentioned creating content that's clearer. And that really resonates with me because my wife's in the healthcare industry and she watched, I noticed one of your articles recently, you, You were one of your posts mentioned some of the CDC, some of their communication in the past few years, and (laughs) if you're not watching this, we both just cringed. Yeah, our faces cringed, because as my wife and I watched this, me as a marketer and her as someone in the industry of healthcare, we recognized that the CDC were good at being scientists, but horrible at communicating, because, you know, you know how as marketers we're taught early on to create content for a fifth grader that's clear, people can actually understand. Um and we 're not being as careful as let 's not say this today because people might do these things tomorrow, whereas the c d c had to be very careful, and they didn 't do it well, I mean, just to to put it bluntly i don 't think they tried no, they, they, they know were being they did careful, it yeah, yeah, they know they did it terribly, even they know because they were communicating like scientists, not like public like PR people, I guess.
1: Yeah, so it's really interesting. You know, the CDC has an epidemiology intelligence service, which is, you know, they basically are the first responders to when they see pandemics or um, whatever the smaller ones are called breaking out. And they have a playbook, and there's a chapter in the playbook about communications. And one of the things they say is that a pandemic is just as much of a communications crisis as it is Mm. a health emergency. They They, they did not use that playbook. And I think that their politics were at play. I think that they absolutely communicated as academics rather than as plain spoken people. I think that's one of the reasons that our former president was so successful because he is a very plain spoken person and he did appeal to the average, whatever that is, American by making it clear. But unfortunately, because of some of the, I think, misinformation he was being given and the misinformation that he was communicating to the American public, it even brought down the trust in the CDC more because of the difference of the level of language. Um, I know that everyone, well, not everyone, a lot of people really did love Fauci, but if you look at his communication level, it was at a 10th grade reading level. So, and I'm not a huge fan of reading levels, but I do think it's a helpful data point So when you look at that and you understand that we suffer as a society from using language that everyone can relate to, it just becomes more and more apparent. And I don't think it's just true in healthcare. I think it's true in almost everything. It's true in everything. Uh, When you look at doctors today, they don't want to read the New England Journal of Medicine. They just want to read the abstract because the way the New England Journal of Medicine is written is like it's just very passive language it's very long sentences it's not good writing and we need to move away from this idea that good writing is academic jargon filled thick writing and instead is sophisticated clear language that's designed to communicate ideas instead of just impress you with how smart somebody is
0: that's that's the problem i mean we would we would watch the news in the past year or two like i said again through a marketer's eyes and her being a scientist's eyes And the scientists would look at that or hear and go, okay, that makes sense to me, but I've got a master's degree in biology. That's the only reason why it makes sense. And when that information changes next week, I know how science works. I'll be okay with that. But the average listener or reader of that information goes, no, if it changed, it must be a lie because you changed.
1: So I think you're hitting on something that marketers need to think about in general, which is humility towards their audiences. I think that if they had come out and really said to people, very honestly, this is an emerging situation. This is changing all the time. We're going to give you the best decision we have at the moment, knowing very full well that that guidance may change. We're doing the best we can to keep one step ahead of this. But this is unprecedented, which was everyone's favorite word. (laughs) And which quite frankly, it was not unprecedented. I mean, there's plenty of epidemics and pandemics that they could have looked at for ideas about how to handle these things. They really screwed it up on every level you can think about. They really did have guidance and, you know, it was not that unprecedented. If you look at the 1912 flu and you look at other epidemics in other countries, you really could see models of how to communicate effectively. And so, Yeah, I think that that's one of the things marketers need to think about in general, and agency owners need to think about in general is being humble enough to say, "I'm going to tell you what I think, but I don't know." And 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 Fauci would have, I think, done himself a great service if he hadn't sounded so absolute sometimes. And like he was talking to scientists uh, versus. No, but more than that, like we know this to be a fact. No, you don't. And I think that they did try to say that, but they didn't say it as clearly. And they're, you know, like. Dr. Bricks would get up there and, you know, she. It, there just was a whole tonal aspect to it that I think just turned off a lot of people. And I think you're right about the academia, but I also think it's about the humility to say we're human and we don't know all the answers. We don't have all the answers, but as soon as we get more, we're going to communicate them to you as quickly as we can. And that I think is a really important part of establishing trust. You know, when I pitch to clients, I'll say things to them like, you know, I'm going to tell you what I know from my experience, but I can't promise you that this is going to be the outcome. But what I can tell you is that we're going to be together every step of the way and we're going to try to figure it out as quickly as we can. And I think that that generates more trust than saying, oh, we've done this a million times and we're going to do this perfectly. And (laughs) who are you kidding? You know, every situation is a little bit different. We just did an SEO training with our product team. And, you know, we always do one because, you know, we, every year we want to make sure that we're keeping up to date and we have constant conversations about it. And one of the things was, can we keep a repository of SEO information? And I'm like, absolutely not. It's changing all the time. It's re- You have to research it from the context of what the strategy of the project is. And we need to make sure that we're always thinking about, is this a large institution? Is this a smaller company? What audience are they trying to target? What long tail keywords are going to apply to that audience versus what long tail keywords are going to apply to a larger, bigger enterprise, international audience? And so that's, I think, another thing that, you know, we have to really always be cognizant of is that language is changing and the way people access information is changing. And so to say to clients, hey, we're going to do the best we can, but we're in a rapidly evolving world and, you know, stick with us for the best bets. I think that's the best you can do. And I think it doesn't trust. At least I hope it does.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I hope it does. Well, th- that steps into some things I want to ask you about as well, which is, let's say you're a marketer and you're looking to hire an agency for content marketing. What are some of the advantages and disadvantages of hiring a specialized marketing agency like yours?
1: Yeah. So the advantages are clear. You don't have to explain things to us. The onboarding is completely different because we share the same community of practice. So we know the language around it. We understand the challenges of the industry. We understand the challenges of the culture that you're in because typically a lot of healthcare cultures resemble each other either because of regulation or because of, you know, the industry that they're in in general. And Um, The stakeholder influence is very powerful. The scientists and the doctors and the medical experts get to make a lot of the decisions, which is not the way it should be, but a lot of them share that problem. So I think that that's really helpful to our clients. And I think that most of them really want that. That's why they come to us. I think the disadvantage could be that when you work in other industries, you can pull best practices from everywhere. And one of the things that we think that we do well is because we uh, focus on business to consumer, business to business, and business to physician or to academic, we are pulling from, and all the different sub-verticals in healthcare, you know, payers, providers, uh, med tech, you know, devices, uh, government, regulatory bodies. We do feel like we're pulling that all together, but I'm sure that there are things happening in financial services or tourism or, you know, industrial or communications, you know, that, We probably could use that we just don't have access to. And that's why it's so important to go to conferences like Content Marketing World that don't just focus on healthcare, but that focus on content marketing in general, because those are where you get those great ideas and reading articles, particularly when one just came out today where they sort of crowdsource different experts' opinions about things. And you just see, like in almost every agency and in almost every industry, people are sort of bringing up trends that are similar, but approaching them from different lenses. So we do try to avoid that pitfall of seeing every tool as a hammer in healthcare writing and, and content strategy. But I, I, I definitely see why you would want a cross of agencies, maybe that can help you think about things a little bit differently. What I will tell you, though, and I think the proof is in the pudding, is that very often... When our healthcare clients step outside of healthcare into a web design firm or a writing firm that does not have healthcare experience, they come skedaddling right back because it's just too hard to get them to get it. So one of the things we talk about is like, why does every hospital website look the same? And it's probably because there's five or six players in the space, but that's the design that works for that kind of business. So, you know, there's like no getting around it sometimes. And I, I think that that's an important thing to remember is that sometimes bringing in an agency who's done this a million times is a lot better than bringing in an agency who's done it once.
0: I think I hear a very important lesson in in all that you just said for anybody looking for a marketer, because first, I would definitely go for a company who knows that space, like you know, healthcare. Yeah. And then once you find maybe a short list of those companies who definitely know the space. Beyond that, look to see how open are they to continued continue learning about the whole marketing space. Like, okay, we're great. We, ha- we, we know you know healthcare, but how much are you looking outside healthcare to help us be you know, newer, have more ingenuity to break out of the mold and be a differentiator from all the other healthcare Companies.
1: Yeah. I mean, we have five values at AHA Media Group and two of them speak directly to that. The first one is, you know, the joke always be closing. So ours is always be learning, always be learning new things, always be listening. You know, I listen to podcasts from every vertical you can think of uh, and then and, you know, every discipline with, within marketing and communications and content strategy. But I, the other value that we have is stay curious longer. And I think that is a trap that when you're inside of one particular niche, it's really easy to just say, I know the answer to that question because I did that for five clients. But the value of Stay Curious Longer is there at AHA Media Group because we don't want to make snap judgments and we don't want to just say, oh, we know this because we've encountered it before. It's probably different because a lot of those nuances are subtly different and you need to figure them out for each particular project and then for each particular client. So, um, you know, I think that we we really are big believers in learning, but we're also believers in sort of pumping the brakes and saying, is there something new here that we haven't encountered before uh, that we want to consider when we're approaching this project?
0: You know, we've noticed that when we, when we work with clients who are in regulated industries, it's a whole different ballgame in most cases. Um, so, being that you work with healthcare clients, I'm sure that there are a lot of very sensitive issues that we mentioned earlier, COVID, um, that are that are discussed. So, what advice would you give marketers who struggle when creating great content when at the same time they're in a very regulated industry?
1: Yeah. So, make friends with compliance first. Uh, lawyers are very creative people, and compliance people. When you take the time to set up the this is the goal and this is what we're trying to do. They really are going to try to help you push up against the limit, but they're also there because you don't want to go past it. It's always so interesting to me how, you know, people complain about compliance and yet, do you really want to see your company splashed on the first page of a, you know, a homepage of a major newspaper because you screwed something up when you made a promise you couldn't deliver on? So it's always so interesting to me. And those, those guide rails and those guardrails are in place because, the government takes that seriously for whatever reason, and you may not take it seriously, but it's a really important thing to consider. Uh, one of the things that I always talk about is you know, um, and it, w- it was just his birthday, so I-, I think it's one of the reasons that it's on my mind. But Kobe Bryant died in a helicopter crash, and the helicopter was not equipped with a certain piece of equipment. A few years before that, the Federal Aviation Administration did a cost benefit analysis of what it would cost independent um, helicopter operators to install this piece of equipment. And they came to the determination that it would be too much of a burden on those independent helicopter owners. And that's why they didn't put that piece of equipment, they didn't require that by law. And then they get slammed with something like the Kobe Bryant thing. And again, that decision was the probably the right decision when you did the economic analysis. And when you looked at the facts on the ground, it did not make sense from a money perspective to make this a federal law and requirement. On the other hand, you now have this terrible thing that happened, this real tragedy that could have been avoided. And it's always a question of how to weigh those things. So I think people should have a lot more respect for compliance than they do. And I understand why it's frustrating, but I remember I was once selling a project and I, you know, we were talking about the number of interviews and I said, we always interview compliance first. And she's like, well, I don't want you to waste your time doing that. And I said, I'll pay for it. Like I'll absorb that cost because that's how important that conversation is. Because if you don't interview compliance first and you hand in a piece of content that they, that, and they're going to, they're just going to tear it apart very differently than they would if you've established that baseline relationship with them from the beginning.
0: Let's talk a little bit about content in the context of searchability and Google. And, you know, once you've passed those lines of you're compliant and you you're in the industry. You're you're focused, and you you chose the right in the right agency. If you're a marketer, um, I noticed recently Google had a had an algorithm update that signaled that Google was looking for expert language in their web content. And for our podcast clients, I explained to them that having their experts have conversations allows us to capture that expert language not only for podcasts but also for the written content as well. So when an organization starts to they need to start with written content, if that's their first starting point, like what your agency does a lot of doing written content, what are your tips on guiding their marketing agency to produce text in a voice that represents their expertise?
1: Well, so my understanding of that update is that Google is looking for content that's written for human beings and not for bots. And that they're also looking, they're always looking for expertise, authority, and trustworthiness. I mean, that's an update they rolled out a long time ago. So I think that you, first of all, your expertise comes from your domain, right? So that if you're public, for our clients, we're publishing on trustworthy domains that are, you know, known for valuable healthcare information, It would be interesting to look at the CDC and to see if their domain trustworthiness has fallen, because I know that their perception, the Kaiser Family Foundation did a study of them in the middle of the pandemic, and they had fallen by 17 points in trustworthiness. That's a big drop. So I think that you always have to cite sources. You have to prove your data. Um, and that's how you come across this trustworthy. I think you also have to look at your audience. So if we're writing a blog for a B2B audience, um, and we're talking about the latest original research that this company has done, we're obviously going to use a different tone than when we're talking to a mother who's worried about her daughter's epilepsy diagnosis. It's just a very different approach. And, you know, it reads much more like an article on the B2B side. Whereas on the pediatric diagnosis, you know, you're being very reassuring, very emotional, very empathetic. And I think that that's how you that's how you do it. You know, there's a part of me that thinks that all of Google is just a big scam. You know? Even
0: like, <laughs> even the, even the they, updates that they tell us about.
1: Yeah, they claim they have all these MIT researchers. Maybe they have like you know. Five. But no, I, I, I do think that search science is very complex. And I think that there's a lot of things that we can influence, but we can't control. So we can't control site speed, we can't control loading, we can't control a lot of the technical back end things that are really important mobile optimization. What we can control is metadata and we can control the way the content sounds. And I I think that every client is different because they have tone, they have voice, they have audience needs that they're trying to achieve. And so we're just always trying to come at it from the perspective of backing up what we know with sources, almost like a journalistic code of honor, and also just trying to make sure that we're speaking to the audience in a way that's going to help them absorb the information rather than, like I said before, make them feel like, oh, this is just, you know, these people are really smart so I should go see them everybody's really smart you know what I mean so you know how can you prove that your institution or your company has what they need to get what they want I think that that's the way that we approach it and in terms of the algorithm updates you know it's better for us like I think a lot of marketers particularly content marketers are nervous about AI writing content and this update just shows that Google's like mm-hmm yeah no, we're not we're not buying into that either. Like we need human yeah. beings to think through content, not you know, not bots. and I'm not um, saying that a bot can't do a great job writing about a sports game. You know, they can give you the updated scores and what players did what. But I don't think that they can give you a nuanced portrayal of the team dynamics that led to a victory or a loss,
0: yeah, and that's the great part. I mean, as of this particular week that this was recorded, I think we're both referring to recently, we heard that Google was looking for stuff written for humans and right, right. And which makes us think, well, maybe that's also better by humans versus by AI. Um, And then the one you mentioned earlier, which was, um, you know, language is from experts or from experts. But there was one in the middle, actually, where Google, and this is maybe last spring or so, they're talking about actual words. Like, for example, you and I as marketers having a conversation, we'll use terminology and phrases that if you hired a writer to say, hey, writer, go write about marketing. They won't use the words that you and I will use because we are marketers, we're deeper into it. And I think Google was trying to say, they're trying to flesh out people who are hired to write, who know nothing about the industry versus those who are actually in the industry talking about that thing, which is why I love that your, your company specializes in healthcare so that you can be on the outside of healthcare, but have expertise to actually write as well as someone who's on the inside.
1: Yeah. So there's a ton of research around this, like the Nielsen Norman group did a a piece of research around this and they talk about communities of practice. So jargon is not jargon when you and I as marketers are talking to each other about ROI, but that's jargon to somebody outside of marketing or, you know, financial parts of companies who are like, what, what's ROI? You know, I, my husband works for the federal government and there are all sorts of acronyms acronym acronyms I'm stupid acronyms he uses every day that i have no idea what he's talking about but when he's talking to other economists he's, they understand it, it's shorthand for them. And so that's where I think it's important to remember that jargon becomes shared vocabulary when it's inside the right community of practice. But when an outsider is listening to it, they have no idea what's happening. And that's actually really instructive for the healthcare consumer, because when somebody's confronted with a need or a diagnosis, or, you know, I need to find a medical device, they begin to educate themselves as they move through that search funnel. And so they go from being an outsider to being becoming a person who totally understands that shared vocabulary, and it's no longer jargon to them. So I think it's a smart move on Google's part to make sure that they are identifying those issues, but also remembering that outsiders need to educate themselves on those matters as well.
0: Definitely. Yeah. I mean, like you said earlier, who knows how much of what they let us think we know about Google it could be five guys in a garage still, for all we know. I mean, <laughs> we don't know.
1: Yeah, they're making a lot of money in that garage, let me tell you. No, yeah, exactly. I, I, think that I think that there's science to it, but I also think that a lot of it is art. And I think that you would be good to remember that when writing because I can do, like, I'm writing this article on, you know, five mistakes that marketers make when spending marketing dollars and... There's so many keywords that I can be using that I feel like just don't ring true to the tone of the piece. And I want to balance the SEO value of the article with the value to the reader, you know, yeah. and I think that that's and it's also getting distributed on a very large content platform. So I know it's going to be seen and shared. If I was writing it for something smaller, I might rethink that SEO value. So there you are, an example of where a human being can make a nuanced decision that probably AI can't make just yet.
0: But stick around. So, stick around. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ahava, your your background is primarily in, I mean, your, your expertise is in writing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you really know how to write good content. Your agency really knows how to write good content.
1: My yeah. agency knows how.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know how to produce good content, whether it's <laughs> you or your team. Um, I want to ask you about different types of content. So, in terms of, like, what are your thoughts on how marketers should be consider- Should be considering video? I saw one of your recent posts on LinkedIn about video. So what are your thoughts about where marketers' minds should be today regarding video?
1: Writers consume, organize, and output information. And so does everybody else. Videographers do it and photographers do it. It's just the tools that you're using that are different. So when a videographer says to me, video is different than writing, I'm like, "Mm, is it really, though, because you're just looking for a way to organize information through pictures and audio. And I'm just looking for a way to organize information through words. So I really don't see a major difference between them. The starting point depends on the budget of the marketer. So I think for most of my clients, they really want to start with written content, see if it sparks a conversation, and then go towards video or something like that. But then different stories lend themselves to different kinds of formats. So if you're trying to tell the story of a patient journey, written content's great, but A video is obviously going to be much more evocative. So it's really also about what you want the audience to get out of the piece. And I think that that's the place where people start. But anytime anybody says to me, I'm not a writer, I'm like, "Mm, if you talk and you make sense, you're a writer. It's just a different, it's just a different way of manipulating tools. So I might talk through, through words that are typed on a screen, but you're talking on a podcast and you're listening to what I'm saying and you're probing to get further information. I don't really think it's any
0: different. It's interesting you said that because we've, we've done videos for companies where we knew they may not have realized it, but we knew some of the greatest output of that video would be their text. Because think about a it CEO this way. It. You can't call the CEO or CMO or C-suite at all and say, Hey, can you write us a thousand word article or thousand word article? No, it's not ever going to happen. If you say, hey, can I talk to you for 30 minutes? Or you have somebody who wants to interview you for 30 minutes? That you might actually get. They don't realize they're being tricked into writing an article. <laughs> they just know they're coming to, to talk.
1: I couldn't have said it better myself. That's exactly yeah. right. They're being tricked into writing an article when they're talking. That's exactly right. And I agree in terms of the repurposing of content. I think that that's anywhere you start make sure you follow through and finish with creating something else, because you're always going to find that nugget that's going to be valuable to people that you can, you know, sharpen into shorter video or shorter pieces of content and really think about the channels you're using. So, you know, I mean, what you would put on Instagram is completely different than what you would put on Facebook and what you would put on LinkedIn. You're going to think about outbound links very differently than you're going to think about it on Twitter, which is really sort of designed for that kind of information sharing, whereas LinkedIn wants to capture you on the platform. So I think that it the starting point depends on the budget, the type of information you're communicating. But it's, it should really start with audience, the type of communication you're communicating and the budget. And then search is a huge part of it. I mean, one of the things you saw in that last video was I was talking about how if your captions, if you if the way you label the video and you're not putting keywords in the description and you're not, you know, using the right image thumbnail over the video image, you're losing the audience. And these are always the afterthoughts, but they really are the critical part because it's just like with search. If people can't find it, I don't care how valuable the content is. It's sitting in a forest and no one's listening to it. So, yeah, I mean, I'm a very big believer that video is huge. I also think that there's a place for every kind of content format and it really has to do with strategy and um, making sure that your audience is going to listen or read or consume or learn to dance along with. <laughs> you
0: <know? laughs> well, you what said magic Yeah. It's funny you said dance. We both have a connection there on music in terms of using music as an analogy of how to to repurpose and remix well, I
1: just want to say that is a huge compliment to me, Lee, because you are the god when it comes to that <laughs> stuff, and oh I god. know very little. Can't so I do that. appreciate you saying that, but you're the expert on that. I just try to, you know, ride your coattails there.
0: Hey, tell that's <laughs> I, it's hard for me to even hear that. <laughs> well, I, I want to end on that note because you definitely. I'm looking forward to your presentation in content marketing world. Um, so I want to talk about this this most crucial element that we we talk about in terms of marketing, which is repurposing. Um, you know, it was my keynote at Content Marketing World last year. And I know you're giving a session this year and I look forward to hearing. And I want to know, I don't want to give away your presentation, but tell us your latest thoughts on how marketers can optimize the repurposing of their new or existing content.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to talk about Taylor. Taylor Swift, for those of you who are not in the know. And... <laughs> You know, so Taylor was motivated to re-record her albums because of a political issue that came up where they got her masters got sold to somebody she hated, which is actually kind of funny because they flipped that asset already. So she's like re-recording these masters and Scooter Braun doesn't even own them anymore. So, you know, it's kind of ironic, but the way she did it was she thought to herself, how can I capture the spirit of the original and update it for who I am now as a woman? You know, and a lot of these songs she wrote when she was a girl mm. and a teenager. And so I'm going to talk about how thinking about the way she approached it gives us a different lens into how we can think about our own content. Um, um, And at B2B Marketing Forum in Boston in October, Anne Hanley's conference, I'm going to be talking about how we can learn from the music industry in general. So Beyonce to me is a perfect example of somebody who's experimented with content distribution. She does, you know, she did drops, Lemonade had video, visual videos. You're talking about video versus written, right? Video versus song. Um, she just, you know, with Renaissance, she let everybody know it was coming out and she didn't do any videos along with it. And what does this tell us about constant experimentation? I also think that there's a real value. We don't have this in content enough, I think, but having a producer, like an executive producer over content. So that person is in charge of, taking a piece of content and thinking about how we can reformat it and how we can repurpose it and how we can distribute it in a lot of different ways. So that's one of the things I'm going to be talking about also. Um, I'm not going to have any really great disco jams like you did, (laughs) but maybe I should send you the presentation and you can be like, I think you should drop, you know, something interesting in here. But no, my, I just, I, I think that one of the reasons I love doing presentations like that is it's incredibly relatable You know, like everybody's heard a Taylor Swift song, even if they pretend not to like her. So I think that there's value in that. I will say one thing that I do want to talk about with that presentation that I think is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. I gave that presentation virtually and I wore red lipstick because when Taylor redid red, I mean, red is known for her. You know, she's known for her red lipstick Mm -hmm. and the. At the virtual presentation, you know, they asked for, you know, evaluations at the end and you would not believe how many people said the best part of that presentation was the fact that Ahava wore a red lipstick, which was a little annoying to me because
0: I <laughs> didn't to take say it. the best
1: part, but they were like, I love that she did that. And I think that that's the secret sauce that all marketers are going after is that red lipstick. Like, what can we do that gives that extra added delight? to our audiences, that makes them feel like there's a wink wink going on here. I see you, but I also am doing something so small. And like, to me, it was like a throwaway thing. Like, of course I'm going to wear red lipstick, but I didn't give a lot of thought to it. Like the amount of time I spent researching and thinking about Taylor Swift and the way she approached rewriting her, her, um, songs and her albums was nothing compared to the fact that I threw on some red lipstick right before that presentation. And yet it made all the difference. And so I think my message to your listeners is whatever kind of marketer you are, where is that red lipstick moment? And no matter what format, no matter what channel, think about something that's going to really make your audience feel like she gets it. They get it. They really get it. And, and I think that that's the secret that all of us are chasing. And then when we find it, we just got to find the thread line and keep it going through. It's like my hot pink glasses. Everybody associates me with these hot pink glasses now. And it's just funny to me that that became my talk trigger in the, in the words of Jay Bear. But like, if I don't wear them, people are like, where are your glasses? I'm actually getting to say, how many one. How
0: yeah. many pair do you have? I, have know,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I asked Jay Bear how many plaid suits he has. Because I mean, once it's your thing...
1: Once it's your thing, people won't let it go, right? Like, if I'm not wearing, I I recorded a video without them, and my marketing manager was like, people aren't going to like it. Like, they're not going to care. She's like, yeah, they're going to
0: care. When I was a DJ, I used to have mirror aviator glasses and a baseball cap all the time. And I actually, after doing it for someone, I thought nothing of it. Like, you may have not thought about your glasses for a while. Someone says, oh, I almost didn't recognize you. I was like, why? I'm the same person. You didn't have on your glasses. I'm like, really? I mean, you I'm not. Know. I'm not Batman. I don't just hide when I put my glasses on. You know, <laughs> but, but that, that's
1: that, and that was evocative for people, right? Like, if you weren't wearing those glasses, you weren't that same DJ. And a DJ really is somebody who knows how to evoke emotion and tell a story of a night, right? Yeah. So I, I think that that's you know, we're just saying the same thing. It's just its identity and its its identification with the audience, and I think that. You know, that's really that that red lipstick, that pink glasses, that
0: baseball hat. But that, that's what that is, that plaid. That's, well, I, love, I love your glasses. I look forward to seeing those glasses in person when I see you in a few weeks in content marketing Yay. world. So, Havith, I am tremendously grateful for your time and insights today um, from your speaking engagements to your agency. Please take a moment to share with the, our audience anything else you'd like to know or how they can reach you or where they should go to learn more about you.
1: Thanks. So ahamediagroup.com is where you can reach us or hello at AHA Media Group and happy to answer any questions. Always love to talk to people about, you know, burning questions around the intersection of healthcare, communications and content. So, um, yeah, I mean, if I don't know, I'm going to tell you. And if I have ideas about it, I'll talk your ear off.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. Well, again, thank you, Ahava. I really appreciate you. Stay well.
1: Thank and you. Thank you. Th- I can't wait to see you.
0: Yes, yeah. in only a few weeks. And yeah. thanks for the listeners. If you're listening to the podcast and also want to see Ahava and I, video the podcast and others will be available on the podcast section of ContentMaster.com. Thanks again. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Business of Marketing podcast. A show brought to you by ContentMonster.com, the producer of B2B digital marketing content. Show notes can
1: be found on ContentMonster.com as well as ALEEJUDGE.com.
0: To continue the conversation, be sure to follow the podcast on your favorite podcast platform.